0: Hey everybody, it's nice to be here today with you guys, worshipping. Um, We're just reading from 1 Peter 2 this morning, verses 11 to 17. We all got it? Cool. Cool. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority believers fear god and honor the emperor
1: all right fantastic thanks dave thanks for reading that out for us and thanks again thank you for your uh welcome over the last couple of months as we've kind of come to be part of uh, the church here at richmond we really appreciate it and as james said before we've really felt at home here which has been which has been excellent, and uh, as someone that still feels reasonably new here, I know it's a real privilege to be able to stand up and and share some things with you this morning, continue on this uh, series we're looking at in 1 Peter on on living differently. Um, So as we start, I want to take your mind back a little bit. So back in 2014, Channel 7, in my personal opinion, hit a new low in commercial TV uh, when they premiered a show that was called What Really Happens in Bali. Did anyone see that show? Oh, we got some brave person nodding their head at the back. Uh, if you were unfortunate enough to actually see any of the show, or its equally horrific spin-off show, which is creatively titled What Really Happens in Thailand, um, uh, you'll know that it didn't paint a very positive picture of Aussie travellers abroad. It was pretty horrific, uh, really. Uh, and the premise of the show was a pretty simple one. You, you find the most Bogan Aussies you possibly can, You put them in a context where there's almost unlimited supply of cheap alcohol uh, and then you put them in a country where there's very few rules and regulations and then you just follow them around with cameras and let the action take care of itself. Uh, You can imagine what it was like if you didn't see any. It was car crash TV um, at its finest. And to be honest, I actually don't think I ever saw a full episode of the show. You'll have to trust me on that. Uh, I'm not that hard up for entertainment. But just watching the ads was embarrassing enough. You know what it's like? You see that stuff unfolding. That was embarrassing enough. The idea that these people were representing me as an Australian, that the perception that people might have of what we are like as Aussies overseas was resting on their shoulders, it kind of made me shudder to think what people might think of us when they were acting that way. I wanted to sit them down and give them a stern talking to. Like, if you're going to represent me in a context like that, in a different culture, in a different country, then please just pull your head in and stop acting like idiots. Because their behaviour, their action, the way they went about life was far from being, you know, winsome or attractive in any way. It was actually the opposite. Their actions, their behaviour, their way of life just came across as, as repellent. It was pushing people away. Now, I've got to be a little bit careful not to jump too quickly to the parallels with our passage that we're looking at today in 1 Peter. Uh, because let's make this very clear from the start. Peter is not addressing Aussie bogans in Bali, right? That's not, that's not our passage this morning. But as we've just heard, as Dave just read out, he is addressing his audience as foreigners and exiles. And he's explicitly interested in their behavior, in their action. And the witness and the reputation that it engenders. He's interested in how they live. Because what Peter is doing, he's offering advice to a a group of people who are attempting to live out their newfound faith in the context of a foreign culture. But the difference is these guys are not foreigners in a purely geographical sense, although some of them may have been spread out around different countries. But they are foreigners primarily as people who had a brand new identity in Christ, who are now citizens of the kingdom of God and were having to learn how to live that out faithfully in, a, in, the, in the kind of cut and thrust of first century culture. They were suddenly now citizens of of two worlds their geographical location might not have changed their cultural context might not have changed they were still citizens of the roman empire that is where they lived but their newfound faith and identity as citizens of heaven they were suddenly strangers in a familiar land does that make sense They're trying to work out what it meant to live as citizens of two worlds, as both first century Roman Empire citizens and also as brand new citizens of the kingdom of God. And how did they live that out faithfully? And what I love about a passage like this is that this is still very much our context today. I mean, this is our home, right? Richmond, Adelaide, Australia, earth. Push it out even further. Like, this is where we live We're very much part of the culture around us. We go to school, we go to work, we watch football, we browse Netflix, we read books, we drink coffee, we do all of those things that are very much a part of our current cultural climate. This is where we live. And yet we also live out our lives as citizens of the kingdom of God, as citizens of heaven, as followers of a different king, Jesus and our ultimate allegiance is not to any human power or any political persuasion or any cultural norm. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom. And of course, there are moments in life, there are times in life when you know, that really isn't going to cause us too many issues, to be citizens of two worlds, to, to live out our lives as followers of Jesus in the world. I mean, this is God's world, right? this is god's creation and god has created humanity in his image and so it's no surprise that when we look around at our world we see glimpses of beauty and we see glimpses of goodness we see glimpses of generosity and flourishing relationships and shalom we see that in our world because this is god's good world And God has created us in his image. We see those things in our world. And when we see those things, we should celebrate those things. We should participate in those things because this is God's world. And yet, there are also other times when our allegiance to Jesus is going to grate against the values of our culture, right? And in those moments when we're trying to faithfully live out of God's story as citizens of God's kingdom in the world, that's going to make us feel a little uncomfortable. Because what we see in our world, it doesn't naturally line up with what we see in Scripture about the kingdom of God and about Jesus. And in those moments, we've traditionally kind of had three choices as to the way that we engage with the culture around us. Uh, The first two of which haven't been particularly helpful ways of going about it. So the first posture that we can adopt as we seek to think about how do we as citizens of God's kingdom engage with the culture around us, the first one is a posture of rejection. We can just kind of reject what we see out there in the world. And this can take the form of a couple of different things. The first way to reject culture is just to, I suppose, escape or withdraw from it. And this is where we will tend to spend all of our time in our, in our kind of little holy huddles or Christian enclaves and separate ourselves off from our broader culture. We don't want anything to do with it because it might kind of taint us in some way. So we just won't engage with culture at all. But traditionally that hasn't been a very helpful way of going about engaging culture because we never get a chance to actually get in the cut and thrust of it and that is not our calling our calling is actually to engage with the broader culture around us but equally we can reject culture when we take uh, like a like a combative and us versus them approach to our prevailing culture as well and this is where we make things all about you know left versus right or progressive versus conservative or religious versus secular And it's all about us versus them. And as we've discovered kind of recently uh, from a certain rugby player engaging on Twitter, this doesn't go down too well either, does it? To approach culture that way, to reject by taking a combative approach. So the first unhelpful way of engaging with culture is to reject. The second posture that we can take at times, which is also unhelpful, is when we uncritically embrace culture. And that is that, you know, our lives and our ethics are not distinct in any way from our broader culture around us. And we just don't look any different. We just look, think and act just like everyone else. Except that we're busy on Sundays. That's the only thing that sets us apart. And understandably, that kind of approach to our world also destroys our witness. It's not helpful to reject certainly not helpful just to uncritically embrace and just look like everyone else and so what we are called to is a third way a third way and that's to hold these things in a delicate balance a cultural tension if you like we are called to engage faithfully in our world Our calling as Christians in every generation, as followers of Jesus, is to know and embody the story that we are called into. And it's also to know and engage with the culture around us. To be faithfully engaged in the world without being sucked into the vortex of the world so that we can participate in the flourishing of God's creation. That's what our calling is. But to do that, we need to know the story that we're in. We need to understand the cultural climate that we live out our faith in. And then we need to go to work with God and through the power of his spirit to participate with him in the redemption of the world. It's, a, it's an incredible calling that we all have. But one that requires of us to live in this balance as citizens of two worlds. To be in the world, but not of the world. And so within that context, this is the advice that Peter gives us. And so I want to go back and have a look at this passage again, because Peter gives us what I've broken down into just a couple of pieces of advice in terms of the way that we can do this to the very best of our abilities, acknowledging that this is actually a really difficult tension to hold, because we can so easily head towards rejection. We can so easily head towards escape or or arguments or whatever to head down that road, and... (laughs) I know all too well how easy it is to head towards an uncritical embrace as well. We we just don't look any different. So this advice that Peter gives us is incredibly important in the context of the culture in which we currently live. So let's have a listen to his voice. Again, if you've still got your Bibles there, let's have a look at the the first couple of verses there, uh, starting at verse 11 again. So Peter's first piece of advice is this. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The first piece of advice may be summed up best in the words of an old Bible college lecturer of mine, a guy by the name of Michael Frost, He would tell us this, that the challenge here is to live questionable lives. We're called to live questionable lives. To not reject or uncritically embrace culture, but to live engaged in our world in such a way that our actions and our behaviour invite curiosity. Does that make sense? That our lives actually provoke questions in people. That our lives are so kind of, in his words again, like deliciously different that people might want to know. They might want to ask questions of why do we live and why do we think that way and and why do we act and behave in such a manner? To live questionable lives. Lives that might confound people. As Peter kind of alludes to in this, that while they might come with a whole bunch of preconceived ideas about the way that Christians are supposed to be and think and act that our lives might actually draw people towards God, then push them away. This challenge is about living the kingdom of God under the very noses of our culture. I was just reading this week uh, about a guy named Jean Vanier. Has anyone heard of Jean Vanier? A couple of people around the place. He, quite a remarkable fellow. He passed away earlier this year in May, Uh, he was age 90, died of cancer. Uh, But Venier was the son of a Canadian diplomat. In fact, his father went on to become the Governor-General of Canada. And so this was a pretty important family that he came from. And when he was old enough, he joined the Royal Canadian Navy and had a a fairly important and glittering career in the the Navy ahead of him as a naval officer. Uh, But inexplicably, uh, to a lot of people, in 1950, he walked away from that career uh, simply as he said, to follow Jesus. And so he went, first of all, and did some study. And when I say study, he did a PhD in the ethics of Aristotle, like you do. Um, so clearly he was a pretty clever fella. He went on to become a professor and taught at a, at a college, St. Michael's College in Toronto. And again, had a glittering teaching career ahead of him. But the most significant moment of Vanier's life actually came in the Christmas holidays of 1964. Uh, he was visiting a friend of his who was a chaplain, um, working with men with intellectual disabilities in an in a, in a institution just outside Paris. And what Venier found when he went into that institution uh, horrified him. Uh, essentially the way these guys lived. He walked into a place where these men, 80, 80 or so men with intellectual disabilities, did very little other than just walk around in circles all day. It was horrible. And he was so moved by this situation and the condition in which these guys lived that he cobbled together enough money to go and buy a house nearby uh, and he then invited two of those men from the institution to come and live with him. Not out of any sense of pity, he invited these guys to come and live with him as equals. His vision was to set up a house, a place where people, able-bodied people could live with people with disabilities as equals. Equals and they could learn from each other and so inviting these two guys to come and live with him. He set up this place called La Arche, Which is my really bad way. Uh, I, I did French at school, but I still it's terrible anyway It's it, it was the ark it was translated as the ark and So he set up this place where these guys could come and live and function as equals because it was his firm belief that actually those of us who in the, world, in the eyes of the world are strong had way more to learn from the weak than we realised. And so that began in 1964 and since then there are now 150 large centres in 35 countries around the world where people with disabilities live together as equals there's another 1800 faith and light support groups for people with special needs and their family and friends across 80 different countries this is the legacy of jean vanier uh, in no, in 2015 actually he became the recipient of a really prestigious prize called the templeton prize And the Archbishop of Canterbury, a very powerful man in the church in England, uh, said this of Vanier's life. And I love the way he describes, in a sense, his legacy, the way that he lived his life. Have a listen to this. He said, He turned society's assumptions about the strong and weak upside down. Those the world considers weak through their disabilities are those who bring hope and strength lived out in community. Those who are strong discover they need the weak. This is nothing less than the kingdom of heaven come to earth. Isn't that a beautiful way of describing someone's life? This is nothing less than the kingdom of heaven come to earth. This is actually the life that Peter is calling us to. To bring God's kingdom of heaven life to our world, to our society, to our culture. And while we can't all be Jean Vanier and do some of the things that he did, this is our same calling. And it's a calling that goes right back to the very beginning of our biblical story. It's a thread that is weaved through God's story in the Bible. That every single one of us are called to that kind of life. To bring God's kingdom life on earth as it is in heaven. Because God's people have always been called to model a different way of life. God's people have always been called to model a different way of being human to be a signpost to a different way of life, to be an on-display people so that the rest of the world around us can see what God's kingdom and what the ruler of God's kingdom is truly like. That is our calling in any cultural context we find ourselves, a life that is marked by radical self-giving love for the sake of the other. And so when Peter talks in this passage about abstaining from sinful desires he's not kind of telling us to just follow the rules and and do the all the things that we know are right and good this is about living an on display exemplary life that we might point people to jesus and it is what helped the church spread like wildfire in that first couple of centuries after jesus they simply out loved the empire They looked after the sick and the weak. They fed the hungry. They looked after widows and orphans and they established things to look after the weak and needy in community. They demonstrated kindness and they showed forgiveness. Their lives were so stunningly different to the brutality of the Roman Empire that people flocked to the faith. And I love hearing stories like that, but it inevitably forces me to ask that question of And and this is our challenge. What might that look like today? What does it look like for us in our cultural climate to be so stunningly different that people might be drawn towards Jesus? How are we living our lives deliberately on display, engaged in our worlds, that invites people to get a taste of God's kingdom? In a culture that's probably best marked by like a, a radical individualism, where life is all about me and right now, how do our lives stand out as so exquisitely different that people around us might find our lives and ultimately our faith, compelling? And I don't know about you, but I find this incredibly challenging to ask myself that question of how compelling is my life? And you guys can insert your own questions here, but I ask myself questions like, what is my life communicating to my kids? What's my life communicating to my neighbors? What's my life communicating to the other parents down at Gilbert Saints footy club that I stand around with on a Sunday afternoon and talk football with? What's my life, communi- is my life compelling to them? Are my hopes and desires any different? How do I live in community and use my finances and make ethical decisions? And how am I transformed by the story of Scripture and empowered by God's Spirit in a way that is captivatingly distinct? Because that's our challenge, isn't it? To live such good lives on display in front of people that our lives might actually draw people towards the kingdom of God. This is our challenge. This goes way beyond just being a nice person and doing the right things. How compelling are our lives to others? I'm just going to let that question hang uh, for a bit, because I think the second piece of advice that Peter gives us is equally challenging but no less important. Let me just read the second part of the passage again. Peter says this, "'Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake "'to every human authority, "'whether to the emperor as the supreme authority "'or to governors who are sent by him "'to punish those who do wrong "'and to commend those who do right. "'For it is God's will that by doing good "'you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. "'Live as free people, "'but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil.' live as God's slaves, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. And if I could sum up what Peter's saying here is he's telling these guys that just because they're foreigners, just because they were free, didn't mean they could disrespect the authorities, didn't mean that they could disregard the laws of the land. Their freedom didn't mean they could do whatever they wanted. It wasn't that kind of freedom. It's kind of what our friends in Bali needed to hear uh, back in 2014. They couldn't just do what they wanted. Rather, Peter says to them that in their freedom, that they were also designed to submit themselves to authority for the Lord's sake. So Peter's actually concerned about the witness and reputation of the church and ultimately the spread of the gospel. He knows that with great freedom comes great responsibility right that's his message with great freedom comes great responsibility the sake of the gospel is in your hands but what's really challenging here i think in this passage is this idea of submission how unpopular is that word is one of the least popular words in our current cultural climate the idea that we should submit to anyone or anything seems ridiculous because the idea of submission is about kind of compliance and obedience and who wants to be compliant and obedient we all want to be revolutionary right the idea of resistance or rebellion or insurgents are much cooler words than submission and besides, I mean, you think about it, When I mean, you read this passage, you think, Peter couldn't have possibly envisaged what our authorities would be like in 2019, right? I mean, doesn't he know that we seem to change prime ministers every five minutes in this country? How are we supposed to take their authority seriously if, if, if the situation's like that? And worse still, we have, you know, the leader of the free world at the moment who thinks it's a good idea to drop nuclear bombs inside hurricanes to stop them from hitting America. Like... How are we supposed to submit to that kind of authority? Um, And in all seriousness, when you read a passage like this, you also start to think about people around the world today who are still living under oppressive regimes and leaders and authorities. They are reading the same passages. They are reading the same story. How are they supposed to respond to a passage like this when it calls us to submit, to show respect and to honour Authorities. Well, as bad as you think our leaders might be in 2019, they really have nothing on the authorities of the first century world. And we have to remember that 1 Peter is written into the context of a people that are being persecuted because of their faith. They're suffering at the hands of their empire. You can go back and read or what horrible histories, however you get your history, to look and, and understand how some of the Christians in the first century retreated. It was horrible times for the church. Peter himself was eventually executed at the hands of Emperor Nero. This is the context into which Peter writes these words of submission and honour and respect. It's actually quite remarkable. And this again for us points to a difficult but really important tension. And the suggestion here is that we, that we don't ignore the abuse of power in our world or that we collude with injustice or stupidity. Other parts of the Bible make it really clear that, that oppression and exploitation and injustice need to be confronted. That's part of our story. Other parts of the Bible make that abundantly clear. But I think what Peter is alluding to here, what he's trying to teach us and the first century church, is that we should first seek to live out our redemptive life in the context, in the framework of our society and culture. In other words, from the outset, the Christian community wasn't established to be a revolutionary political power, but to shape the world through a grassroots redemptive movement. Does that make sense? We're not a a revolutionary political power, but a grassroots redemptive movement. As foreigners and exiles, as Peter said, our focus is not on the conquering of our culture or the forceful imposition of our way of life like some kind of colonial power. The focus here is on living it, living it well in everyday ways and allowing it to permeate our culture. Mark says, in his book Strange Days, calls this the roar of quiet living. I love that terminology. This is the roar of quiet living. Just have a listen to what he says. He says, I believe that throughout, that though our current global movement is in so many ways different from the early churches, this kind of life is the way forward to live ordinarily and quietly, work with our hands, embrace the rhythms and realities of daily life, is seemingly mundane. However, it's actually how we engage in the great spiritual battle against the flesh and the powers and principalities. One could be fooled by such a quiet life, yet when tuned to a heavenly frequency, such a life resounds with a mighty roar. For it's a call to live as the church, a creative minority who live in the world but experience it in a profoundly different way. A way shaped by redemptive dislocation. I love that's it. a, a beautiful way of describing what our calling is as the church. To live quietly to live in such a way that in the ordinary mundane areas of life we are living out the kingdom of god in front of our friends and our neighbors and our workmates and the people at the footy club and wherever else we go that we might have a profound redemptive effect as we go about our lives in that way and i know we love the spectacular i love the spectacular i love hearing stories of you know martin luther king and the civil rights movement and william wilberforce and the abolition of slavery in the british empire and You know Dietrich Bonhoeffer in World War II. I love hearing those kind of spectacular stories of people who have, who have been, who have done incredible, incredible things in really demonstrative ways. But most of us aren't called necessarily to the spectacular, or to the revolutionary. But we are called to an everyday posture. It might be far less dramatic, but it's no less important to go about quietly living out the kingdom of God in front of our friends and neighbours, to love and raise our kids, to work our jobs to the very best of our abilities, to practise community, to love our neighbours, to be generous and kind, to be faithful in the mundane parts of life, to play our small part in the grassroots redemptive movement that is the kingdom of God. This is our calling. And I have to be reminded of that all the time because I love the spectacular and I love to think about changing the world in really spectacular ways and yet the world changes, the world is shaped when we as God's people in community live out the kingdom of God in front of our community. And we can do all the spectacular things in the world but unless we do that in the ordinary mundane everyday parts of life then we're going to push people away from the kingdom rather than draw them in. Let me finish with this in the i 'm on social media like everyone else, and in the you know in the sad, bad, and you know ridiculous that comes across social media occasionally there 's like a little semblance of wisdom and there 's a voice that breaks through all of that ridiculousness to offer me some wisdom. One person for me in that realm is a guy named Eugene Cho, who is a pastor in. Uh, Seattle in America has been a pastor. Set up a charity called One Day Wages. One day's wages, and, and he's one of these voices that every now and again it filters through on my social media feed. And I think, wow, that is spot on. Let me just finish with a couple of his pithy little thoughts as we finish today. He says this: In our culture, we can be so obsessed with the spectacular. But what if God has called us to small, ordinary, mundane things? May we still be faithful? May we still go about such things with great joy and love. And this one last one. We long for justice to run like a mighty river, but often it begins with a trickle. Be that trickle. Seek justice, love kindness, walk humbly. Let's just pray together. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here together as community and to be reminded of the calling that you have on our lives. To be people who live out your kingdom life on display for the world to see. And Father, as we think about the advice that Peter has given us today, may you help us be those kind of people, empower us by your spirit to live such good lives, such lives that are are distinctly different than the world around us, that people might be drawn towards the way of life that you have called us to. Help us to be a different model of what it means to be human. Help us to be a different model as an individual and as a community of what thriving life looks like so that others might get a taste and see how good your kingdom is. And Father, within that too, help us to to not get caught up with the spectacular, but to commit commit ourselves in every way, in the ordinary, mundane, everyday parts of life, to live out that kingdom in really practical ways. Show us this week, what does that look like in our workplaces, at school, with our neighbours? in the community, to love, to be generous, to be kind, to show forgiveness in a way that is compelling for others. Father, we know that as we set out on this calling and this life that you have given us, we desperately need your help and we need each other. So help us through your spirit, help us through the community you've put us in here at Richmond to live out that life to the very best of our ability. We commit these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.